This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We talked last week with uh, Glenn Norton from uh, Economic Development here in the city of Hamilton about the Amazon bid that uh, the city put forward, of course. Welcome to Unstoppable. Uh, it did get stopped, as it turned out, because we didn't make the short list for Amazon's uh, new headquarters. But uh, we were told at that time that, well, the money was a 50-50 split and that the private sector had kicked in out of uh, half, about half of the $467,000. Now we find out that actually uh, they didn't quite kick in half. We were about $42,000 short, which begs the question, who's going to make up the shortfall? Well, city council is going to have to deal with that, I suppose. Donna Skelly, the counselor for Ward 7, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Donna, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Just to refresh our memories, uh, how was uh, your vote on, on the Amazon bid? Were you for it or again it? I was for it, hesitant, but I was for it. Um, I do believe that uh, we have to, uh, y- you know, we have to go after whatever we can. I will say that um, I was a little concerned in the fact that we really didn't qualify right out of the gate. Uh, you can't always be the one that... that uh, is the, is the negative uh, person on council, but did go forward. It wasn't a tremendous amount of money. It was about supposed to be about two and a half on our part, $250,000. Clearly, that's not going to be the case. It'll be more than that. Um, I, you know, I, I think that, that the intent was, everybody was well-intended to, to go forward with this. The reality is, at the very beginning, we didn't qualify. Um, Toronto qualified. Cities that were much larger than us qualified. We could have gone in as part of the Toronto bid. We didn't. We chose to go separately. Uh, Was that a mistake in hindsight? I think so. I think that clearly we were not qualified. And, And the truth is, you have to be careful what you wish for. If we had, and I don't think we ever could have, but if we had won that bid, 50,000 jobs would have had a profound impact on this city and not necessarily a good impact. I think people like Hamilton because we are we are what we are. We're a really manageable size. Um, I think going after smaller projects is really the way to go. They're they're more sustainable. They fit our character. I don't want I like Toronto, but I don't want to be part of Toronto. I don't want to be a Toronto and you have to be careful what you wish for. That type of an impact on this city would have not necessarily been all good. All right, and I know that we're doing this in the rearview mirror, and I get that. And hindsight is always twenty twenty. We, you know, that's that's the cliche, and there's certain elements of truth to that. But did we get a little too giddy when when this came about and just say, "Hey, we sh- we should jump into this"? I think so. I'm I'm really tired of hearing. And I, I was supportive know, of it too, for the same reasons that you've just stated. That uh, you know, you, know, you can't be, be ambitious without. Says, if yeah, you want to be the ambitious city, you have to be ambitious. I get that, but was this just too big a a, a, a thing to bite off? I, I think it was, and I think right out of the gate, we didn't qualify. Um, you know, we, we probably should have gone in with, with Toronto. I think that I love the size of this city. You can still, even though we do have some traffic jams, you can still manage to get around. You know, our our crime rate is starting to creep up with guns. That concerns me. I don't want to see an influx of people, thus an influx of crime. I like Hamilton. I like what we are. I like the fact that we are this incredible city where people still know each other and feel comfortable and you know what it's like though you've been it's a great size and a great city and yes you have to be ambitious but we also have to be realistic we have to grow our our economy um and and manage that growth we had a a presentation just yesterday from jason thorne a director of economic development and we were talking about how 
unaffordable it is becoming for young people to purchase homes. And we're putting pressure on families. So they're going to have to move to, you know, 25 and 30 miles outside of Hamilton because they can't afford to live here because of the growth. We have to learn how to manage it. And something like a, a successful Amazon bid would have thrown the city on its, you know, upside down. And I'm not so sure it would have been great. I think smaller pieces are better. I think it's more manageable. I think we could probably be more successful. And as you said, it's very easy to be critical at, you know, Hindsight is, is, uh, is everything, but the reality is I think moving forward, let's learn from this and go after more manageable projects, something that is a little bit more realistic. All right. With that in mind, then, uh, you got an update from uh, the staff last week that they're going to bring you periodic uh, updates about what's going on and who's, who's knocking on the door, who's making the phone calls to the city now because of this, this package that's put together. Uh, but if, if it's too big and if it was Amazon-oriented, is it going to do us any good at all? Well, no, I think it will help, uh, but I do believe that that was more or less say, well, you know, it wasn't really wasted money. We're going to be able to show you how we have attracted companies because of the efforts in this project. I would have hoped that we would have had periodic updates regardless of the unsuccessful Amazon bid, and I don't know how you can actually say it's because of this particular uh, exercise that we are attracting uh, new business. I think it's part and parcel of everything. I think we have to be very cool, uh, very um, careful. One of the things I hear over and over and over again, and, and it's it's something I'm not so sure I like, and it's, you know, Hamilton's really cool now. Well, you know, that that's fine. I, I get that our, our downtown core is really booming. We have a lot of great restaurants, but we have to be more than just cool. And, um, you know, we have to talk about infrastructure and our access to the airport and, and, and transit and, and all of these other things. It's, it's more than being just a cool place to locate. We have to provide what companies w- want. They want a skilled workforce, which we have. We have Mohawk College, we have McMaster University, and we have access to other colleges and universities in the area. We have to have infrastructure. Our transit is, is, is something that needs vast improvement. We have to work on that. And then we have to work closer. I'm meeting with uh, uh, representatives from the Port Authority. They'll be bringing us an update from there on, and on, on where the port stands today. The mayor has launched um, a smart communities initiative, which I think is, is brilliant. I think we need to have um, fiber uh, access in our surrounding area. And we also need to really push our egg food sector. We rarely talk about that, yet it pumps $2 billion into our economy. It's not quite so cool, but these are high-paying jobs. So, um, it's a you know, yes, we failed on the bid. Should we have gone after it? Well, I don't necessarily think we should have, but it's done. It's, it's you know, I, I should have said something when, when I voted on it. I didn't. So, you know, we'll, we'll accept the fact that, yes, it cost us maybe $250,000. Uh, disappointed that I thought the money was in was already um, raised. Well, that's that's the thing that th- that's the thing that I think is surprising a lot of people this morning. Yeah. is to get this update that says, "Oh, well, it wasn't really." Uh, you know, we're forty two thousand dollars short. Uh, they should have known that and should have told us that going in. Well, exactly. That's the one area where I think I was surprised. I thought that again, we were told that it was a fifty fifty um, exercise, fifty percent of private sector funding. 50% from the city. That's not the case. Why were we told that? And here's, 
I mean, I know, and I, I get the explanation from staff that, and and the mayor said that he's confident that they can find that money from somebody. I mean, somebody goes knocking on your door and says, "By the way, uh, we just put this package together. We're forty two thousand dollars short, and we were unsuccessful. Could you kick in some money for it?" I'm going to why? It's over and done with. What, what what's what's the upside for me? Why would I want to do that? I would say it's like Kevin O'Leary coming after the fact, trying to raise the money to to pay off his his debt and his leadership campaign. If you're if you're on the win, uh, the losing end, people aren't interested in, in giving you money to bail you out. Um, I would say that's a tougher sell right now. And I, uh, my my question is, if we didn't have the money already, we shouldn't have spent it. You know, if if it wasn't promised in writing, we will give you the funding. Then we shouldn't have spent that funding. I would like to see, and I get accused a lot of being um, a little. Let's put it this way, undervaluing uh, the cost of doing things. I would like to know where every dime went. How much of that money went to consultants? Where did the money go? Give me a breakdown. Well, didn't you get that information already? As a council, you should have that information. Not a detailed breakdown. I want to know where every dime went. I want to see it, and I want to know where that $42,000, that extra $42,000, what it's going to pay for you know, we, we, we tend, as, as governments, we tend to um, pay a lot of money for things that I think the private sector wouldn't have been so eager to spend that amount of money. I'd like an actual breakdown, well, a dollar uh, breakdown on but But council rarely does that, Donna. You raise a very legitimate point. But please explain you know, to our listeners that you, as a rule, council doesn't do that. I mean, you spend a considerable amount of money, uh, you know, to, to get a, a review about the, the facilities, about, you know, the Coliseum and, and the Hamilton Place, et cetera. Uh, those things don't get itemized. We just, that's like going to dinner and say, your, your check's 125 bucks. You want, you know, I'd like to see it itemized. What did I get? And, right. and the same thing here. I mean, I understand that the private sector kicked in, and that's great. But it's still taxpayer money. Half of it, maybe more now, is going to be our money. I'd like to know how it was spent and who actually was paid and what did they do to get that kind of money. I think that's the next question and the next step. Give us an itemized list of where every dollar went. What did we buy? I see the brochure. It's glossy. It's pretty. Um, It's got a lot of information in it. But where did that money go? And uh, it'll be interesting to see when you start following I mean, I, I don't want to start getting into the, the, the municipal election, but, I mean, we had uh, Vito Scrooge on the show last week, and he was talking about running for mayor, and you saw the piece in the paper about that that mm-hmm. Andrew wrote. Uh, one of the things he brought up is that the city should have a, a legitimate auditor general, just like the province does, just like the federal government does. And I know there's an audit department here, but we don't get, the, as the public, we don't get that itemized information, and it's our money. I think we have a right to know that. Absolutely, and... As you know, I've been on on um, on this show many times talking about startling um, information when I, something lands on my desk and I start looking at where you know how we spent, how much money we spent on certain things. It, it really is shocking, and perhaps when you work in government long enough, you you become immune or uh, to these these numbers. But when you're in the private sector, you have to watch where every dollar goes. And I think it is important, and I think it's necessary to have this itemized list of where we are spending money. Um, you know, we can make savings. I, I can tell you I was meeting with some people recently who were asking for uh, a washroom at a, at a park, and I've already gone through this. We spent, and I, this is something that, that was probably one of the biggest sticker shocks, 
$600,000 to build a cinder block washroom at Turner Park. And it, it, it's, you know, it really is shocking when you think about that. We owned the land. The water was there, blah, blah, blah. But why 600000 Well, if you look and you, you push back a little, what a lot of other municipalities are doing, they're saying, look, we can't afford to have these pricey washrooms that are vandalized. Let's put in porta-potties and have them taken out, you know, through the week. And we don't even have to worry about operating costs and and so when i looked into it it's um the cheapest washroom for example we could have installed at at a a park was four hundred thousand. when i looked at a porta potty i think it's down to under three thousand for the whole summer so you know these are huge savings uh and it gives us an opportunity to actually serve our constituents but we don't get that conversation and and i only need to point and i'm glad that you're the one that's bringing it up here i mean because we could just point to the situation of you trying to get some information about the waterfront trust and have that money spent down there and and you got raked over the coals by your council mates for that like hey don't even open that door well somebody better open it and that's and the spending at turner park and a number of other things and sadly off the top of my head i can only think about two or three councillors that like yourself that actually do that councillor ferguson councillor collins and yourself and and I know that some of your council colleagues roll their eyes when you bring that stuff up, but that's information that I think we have a right to have. It is. And if you talk to people, our, our municipal taxes are, you know, they're high. They really are. And and it is tough, and it sounds like an old line, an overused line, but people really do feel like they're tapped out. And when you're paying five, six, seven, eight hundred, some people are paying, you know, more than that for their munis- on their municipal tax bill. It's a lot of money. And they're just saying, what am I getting for it? And I think it's, it's important for us to show them where we are spending money and also to identify savings. We really have to. Our consulting costs have not gone down. They haven't. You know, I've, I've asked, and they just don't. I mean, we, 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 we talk um, a good talk, but we're not actually following up on some of these things that we have identified where we could be saving money. Well, and, I like to it, I like to connect the dots, and and that's I think one of the things that we try to do on this program. And we just did a segment last week about the uh, the, the problem you've got with taxation and the re- tax revenue right now because of of some of the appeals that have gone forward, and that's going to be a shortfall. And then I look at this and say, well, okay, invariably, you know what, this is going to come back, and you guys are going to have to pay for this. This forty two grand, and and the, the announcement will simply be made, oh, we're going to get it out of such and such a fund. I don't care; it's still taxpayers' money. And it's yes. money we probably didn't need to spend. And and now here's a tax shortfall, but we're going to be doling money out to this. And, and this is what causes the frustration that I hear time and time again, and certainly you hear it at City Hall. Well, and, and you can go back to last week where we just approved $3 million to be handed over to the Waterfront Trust. And I'm thinking, that's our land. That's our, uh, it was our lease we had in order to get, to let the Waterfront Trust out of a longstanding lease. They're in, in a, uh, mired in a lawsuit. Um, they're behind in taxes, yet we're paying them money to to, to take back the lease. It, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, and, I, I don't want to go into the Waterfront Trust now because I've only got a three-hour show. We could spend all three hours of it doing that. Donna, thanks as always for this. Uh, we'll wait and see what staff come up with in the way of a solution, but I think I already know the answer. Appreciate okay. the time today. Take care. Donna Skelly from Ward 7, of course. Uh, $42,000 shortfall that uh, well, maybe maybe somebody from the private sector will ante up and we won't have to pay that. Or not. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
Well, Vic Fidelli, who is the uh, interim leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party, says he is not going to burn for the leadership. That's a variation on what he said last week, where he wanted to uh, lead the party into the election and maybe beyond. Uh, at the same time, some insiders spoke uh, with the uh, Toronto Sun, saying that the party expects to address the leadership issue today, uh, because there was some speculation about that. I mean, when Fidelli was produced as as the interim guy, they said, yeah, and there's going to be a leadership race. And then, of course, uh, Rick Dykstra quits uh, the party president last week, and now all of a sudden they say, well, maybe we don't need a leadership convention. Are you kidding? Trying to make some sense out of all this, Barry Kay joins us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, great to have you with us. Thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Can you make heads or tails of this? And this thing changes almost by the hour now. No, and it's it's not over because there's still announcements to be made. Uh, no, I was really thrown by the Fidelity thing. He obviously, uh, when he won the um, caucus nomination, he thought that was it. He thought that he would at least have the opportunity to go through the um, till election day, which isn't that many months away anyway. Uh, but I'm still surprised because, in fact, he had contested last time. There are sometimes people that are just interim leaders. Um, I think uh, Wilson, Jim Wilson, uh, uh, handled that role some years back. And, uh, and a lot of people thought he was going to be the guy this time. He's kind but, of a caretaker, but, right? But Fidel, yeah, but Fidelity wanted it, and um, I assume still wants it. And I, I, you know, I, I can't give you, and I, I, I'm not an insider in any way with regard to conservative party politics anyway. No, that one, of all the things that have happened, that perhaps has thrown me the most. However... They will soldier on, and I think the um, the party organization would. I, I, their plan is to have something out in the next day or two uh, that, that that is going to suggest what the rules are going to be. They still don't know the number of um, of members that they have, who's going to vote, what the rules are going to be, uh, and all this is to take place in 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 less than two months. So um, it doesn't look good at, from the outside at the moment, uh, but. Um, Keep tuned. <laughs> you know there'll be uh, there'll be announcements that will be that will be coming. But certainly, the color has been provided by the people who are either announced candidates like Doug Ford or the people that are being speculated about, particularly Phillips and uh, Mulroney are the uh, are the names that seem to have the the buzz and the potentially the cachet to excite the party. But it almost looks like these guys are are, are destroying themselves. I mean, even Fidelli's comments yesterday that he wants to initiate a review on all these memberships that they allegedly sold and you know whether that was legitimate and then of course there's the interaction with the nomination process and uh, they're they're giving themselves pretty negative headlines here heading into an election. Yeah, rooting out the rot was the uh, the quote of, uh, of Fidelis that sort of sort of stuck in the look. Look, the um, right in well, it's Hamilton. better than draining the swamp, I guess. Yeah, the, the Hamilton West nomination yeah. uh, certainly was was messy, and uh, I think there's legal implications with regard to that one. Yeah, the, the the guy that made the big fuss about it says he's okay with it now, but the police is still investigating. As a matter of fact, the federal uh, people are investigating that now. Um, it looks like there's a lot more division and problems under the surface that perhaps what you know what there wasn't that much attention to until Brown resigned and the whole thing has sort of opened up. It's really created a sort of a jump ball for everybody politically. I think there still are problems for the liberals and with um, with Kathleen Wynne. I, I, I always thought that when the conservatives were ahead so much in the polls as they were a year or so ago, that that, that had more to do with the perception of, of Wynne, the premier, than it did with regard to excitement about about Brown. Um, but so again, I, I think it's a very fluid situation. Again, there, there's what four months until the election, just about. Um, there's a lot of things that could happen, and one of the things I, I don't want to suggest this is a prediction yet, but the NDP may have a shot because uh, Andrea Horvath is much more popular than her party, and if people, um, when the NDP has a chance to do well, that doesn't happen very often. But typically, it's when the other two parties are both, you know, viewed in disregard. That's what happened in uh, in 1990. Exactly. Uh, it would, you know, with the provincial win by Bob Ray. It's what I guess kind of happened in Quebec in 2011 when, um, 
you know, when we saw Leighton uh, do so well. Um, I, I don't want to suggest that that's likely to occur. I'm just saying that anything is possible as we move into the June 7th election. You know, in 1990, I can still recall that. And, and for those that don't remember, of course, the, the Conservative Party was not in very high regard at that time. They just... Uh, kind of worn out their welcome after 42 years. David Peterson called an election before he was supposed to. And what we were hearing here, Barry, uh, in talk radio was, well, you know what, I think those two guys stink. I may as well give these other guys a chance, uh, which is all the wrong reason why, and, and to, to vote. But that, that, that was the mindset at that time. I'm getting the sense it's happening again. Well, it could happen. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting the NDP is going to win, but there's that much frustration right now. Yeah, and, and I, I think any kind, and look, the polling is, is, there isn't a lot of polling provincially, but it's been all over the place. And, and again, the polls at the moment wouldn't mean anything anyway, because the conservatives don't even have a leader. And that'll probably be true until they select their leader, which is supposed to be March 24th is the deadline I've, I've heard mentioned. But um, with polling that took place while Brown was still leader, there were variation in polls that were made public by as much as 19 points. Uh, one one had a dead heat between the liberals and the conservatives. Another had the conservatives up by 19. That's the um, the robo polling that uh, Forum does. So even the polling that we uh, even in aggregate we try to get some make some sense of what's going on. I don't think that can be taken very seriously either. What about those names that are being bandied about? I I, I agree with you. I think they've got to have some kind of a leadership race here. They can't simply. Uh, go into this uh, and uh, as offering basically to the electorates uh, this opportunity to say, just vote for us and we'll let you know who our leader is going to be later on. Uh, as the leader does have an awful lot of say in, in how the party is perceived, as we've just talked about, and that's the problem they, the liberals have with Kathleen Wynne right now. But do you really and truly think they can sell the conservative brand, the PC brand here without a leader? Uh, no, not at all. No, absolutely the leader is critical. And indeed, I think there's a lot of uh, hopefulness on the part of the conservatives that either well, maybe some are, some are hopeful about uh, about Ford. I, t- I don't take that as seriously as some of them might. But that either Ka- uh, Carolyn Mulroney or um, or um, Rod uh, Rod Phillips might actually excite and and uh, enthusiasm not just within the party but beyond. What we will see, the Conservatives will have an opportunity. There'll be a lot of focus and attention through the March. It seems uh, decision making who the leader is going to be. I'm reminded. You know, I was just thinking uh, back uh, 50 years ago when I was an undergrad at uh, McMaster. Uh, that the the rise of Pierre Trudeau in those days, we're talking about 68 now, yeah, yeah. that he came out of the blue and indeed um, sort of shocked and excited people at the liberal convention of that particular year, which basically was able to, to push on into a federal election a couple of months later. And there can be an opportunity, I don't want to, there have perhaps been other examples of this, where a party can really turn it, turn it around and make... Um, Lemonade out of lemons, in terms of a sort of a, 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 a dis, what seemed to be a dysfunctional divided party, and exciting ex, uh, to, to try to unite around an exciting new figure. It could be that Mulroney or Phillips. I don't think it'll be Ford in that regard. Could do that, and I think that's what a lot of the conservatives hope. However, there are divisions. It seems divisions I wasn't fully aware of within the party that uh, you know the leading to sort of this backbiting among the different factions. I'm not sure they're capable of it, but I think that's what they're hoping to do. And what we will see during through February, perhaps also, but certainly the month of March, will be an awful lot of attention on who that new leader might be. If they catch on, perhaps uh, that will be the, the salvation uh, for the party. But. Uh, certainly with Carolyn Mulroney, even though uh, she's got uh, good political genes, we do not know much about her political decision-making, and that, indeed, it becomes very much a hardball process that the new leader, is, whoever it is, is going to have to make decisions quickly on the fly. She isn't particularly experienced. She does have a father who's been through it before, and perhaps there are good advisors around her. But sometimes political leaders have to make decisions even before they're able to consult those around them. 
And uh, she's, uh, she seems to be an amateur on the outside. We'll see whether that's true. The Conservatives, I guess, are hoping that, in fact, this will all sort of work together and that they can find a new salvation, as perhaps the Liberals did with Trudeau 50 years ago. But that, that to me, is a very much an open question. Barry, when you're in a situation like this where this party is, the PC is right now, where they have to choose a leader, and the, the election is imminent, there's a lot more at stake here because they've already tried to redefine who they are. I mean, the policy that they hobbled together... Uh, just before Christmas, essentially, it's not middle of the road, but it's a lot more moderate than the PCs have been for many, many years. Uh, if if Ford is going to be the guy, and I, I don't think that's much of a chance either, but that you know anything's possible, I guess, after what we've seen for the last seven days. But if he's the guy, there's no way he can champion that kind of platform going into an election. So you, you throw that out. I mean, are they limited now? That if they're married to that platform, and it sort, sort of sounds like they are, there aren't too many choices there. You kind of need somebody who can be that champion, be that moderate. Oh, I, I'm sure a lot of the uh, sort of mainstream conservatives are cringing at the thought that Ford might actually win. He's very much a bull in a chi- the China shop. Uh, yeah, there was that do- document with uh, Brown's face on the front of it, which they'll certainly change the picture. But um, that, and we, we never really knew Brown very well either because his history had been social conservative and part of the right in the yeah, past. But yeah. he understood that he had to move centrist. Um, the document seems to be centrist. I would think that either Phillips or Mulroney, and there may be other people. I don't want to preclude other candidates coming in either, but they could probably live with it. Um, I think there will be real fear um, and tension about the prospect of Ford, and I, I frankly don't know to what extent he resonates. Uh, again, we're all reminded of what's going on south of the border in terms of extreme politics and, and populism. But I would mention that Kelly Leach, who, re- who expressed certain kinds of views, she was at the federal level. She didn't do all that well. She did okay, but she didn't do all that well at the federal level. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the provincial conservatives are hoping that Ford's appeal will be no greater than hers and that they ultimately will end up with somebody who will present a reasonably positive face and picture on the party that can, in fact, uh, try to coordinate people around the uh, the program that we've been talking about. Yeah, I think the uh, the, the federal uh, leadership race from last year is very instructive in this regard because you're right, leading up to that, Kelly Leach got a lot of media because of some of the outrageous things that she was suggesting. But when push came to shove at the actual convention, what, she finished seventh or eighth, something like yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, look, the um, the conservatives could still put it together, and it may be that um, Mulroney or Phillips, or maybe somebody else, I don't know who that might be right now, will in fact catch fire and sort of be able to unite the party. But there clearly are divisions subterranean within the party that are part of the reason for this, this backbiting. A lot of resentment, certainly with regard to Brown and the people Brown brought in, um, and they were, I guess, hoping that they could just sort of keep it together at least until the election. Unfortunately, that didn't occur. Look, um, if this, these stories were out there, and I don't know what the liberals knew about it before the, uh, the story broke with Brown last week, but it, as bad as it is for the conservatives, if this had happened a couple of months from now, it would have been so much worse. Well, we had that discussion with uh, Richard Brennan, of course. Uh, Richard covered Queen's Park for many, many years, of course, for the Toronto Star. Uh, he was on the show the other day, and uh, we were just looking at this thing, and, and he's still got a lot of sources down there, and it's looking more and more like this is an inside job. This was a palace coup. They just didn't want this guy going into the election, and uh, there seems to be an awful lot of, of, of pointing right now to the fact that it was somebody, or maybe a group of people within the party that actually uh, pulled the brug out from under Brown. Well, if so, they could have done it six months earlier. <laughs> it would have been less disruptive yeah. for the party if it had been outside the 
the window of time that we think of as the election campaign. Technically, we're not quite into the campaign yet, but there really aren't that many more weeks between now and uh, and June the seventh. What, whatever the cause was, anyway, this has happened, so it, 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 it that that part of it doesn't matter. I'm not sure to what extent there are lingering resentments or how many other Hamilton Wests there are in terms of writings where there were people that feel that uh, the arrangement for the nomination wasn't well handled. But with that in mind, uh, it is what it is, as you're absolutely right. Uh, and I don't put a whole lot of faith in polling, but the one that came out yesterday is suggesting that the, that the Conservatives still had a significant lead or a margin. I'm not so sure that's the case. But it, what's I guess the message out of that is that, look, at this is not tearing the party apart. The people are that disgusted with what they've got right now that they're still considering the Conservatives as an alternative, even though they don't know who's going to lead the party or what the party really stands for now. Well, I think the Conservatives have to be seen as an alternative. It's just a matter of once the new leader is selected, how well they will be able to perform within, in a situation where the, the next leader may be somebody who really is not from the caucus and who isn't particularly experienced in dealing with the, the daily kinds of questions and the challenges that are going to come up. They may do fine. They may win the next election. I don't want to say that isn't going to occur. I wouldn't take... Um, I wouldn't take robopolls too seriously yet, especially when, in fact, it's not even clear who the leader is. A lot of things, there's going to be a lot of shoes to drop even between now and March 24th, and indeed even beyond that. So um, we will see. But uh, I don't want to say the Conservatives can't, can't uh, come out and win the next election. I can't say anything, and that, I guess that's perhaps the, uh, <laughs> the theme of my comments. Even the NDP may have a shot at it just because of the, the state of uh, questioning of the other two parties at the moment. Given the scenario that they're in right now, though, and, and the fact that even Fidelity is saying, look, there's a lot of stuff we got to clean up our own party here, kind of pointing the finger at some of the things that have gone on. Would it be in their best interest to look outside of that bubble and maybe look at a Rod Phillips and a Carolyn Mulroney and just say, look, it, I'm not any of those people. I'm different. I, I know that that's what Trump did down in the States, that it was, there was a, but that's a different mindset. These are people that have got a lot more respect, I think, even though they may not have their political chops yet. But they're 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 outside the bubble, and is that what they need oh, right that, now? Well, to... that's part of the appeal. Yeah, um, that will be, but they're also inexperienced. They may be fine. Um, uh, look, uh, but I wonder why Fidelia, you know, just a few days ago was fine being the leader and going to the next election. Now he doesn't want to have. Not only does he not want to be the leader, I wonder, the wonder who talked to him about that. Yeah, and he doesn't. Uh, but he's now pointing out to the public the rot in the party, um, and that. I, I, that makes me think that there's more to the um, the division and more to the problems within the party than we know about. We certainly know about the fact that there's going to be questions with regard to what the party membership is. I've, I've seen estimates suggesting the party uh, membership ranges from 200,000 to 70,000. And again, when you have a system whereby people are buying memberships to get people to vote for them, I, I, I've always thought that was a flawed way to uh, to to select a leader to allow people to try to sell memberships to people who aren't even necessarily connected to the party. Nonetheless, there's that issue too in terms of who is even going to participate in this process, which is yet to be defined. What, what do the other two do in a situation like this? I, I mentioned my commentary this morning that uh, usually when in the in the game of politics, the the, the unwritten rule is when your opponent is self destructing, you just stand back and let it happen. Uh, that that seems to be what's going on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true, and I think. Um, Kathleen Wynne, whatever her shortcomings, is not stupid politically. I think she understands that uh, the liberals have been around too long. And in a, in a normal system, the idea that they would be potentially up for their fifth win in a row. Now, again, we had that Tory um, juggernaut for so many decades back, uh, back in the day. But that, that, that's passed now. The, this, this should be an election where it's time for a change. That, that should be the, uh, the, if we were following uh, traditional uh, ways to, to analyze the system. 
Uh, Kathleen Wynne, I think, is going to try and very much stay out of the news and let the conservatives, hopefully from her perspective, self-destruct. The NDP is kind of doing the same as well, hoping that, in fact, um, Horvath will, in fact, be able to connect with people during the campaign through the debate process or whatever it takes. People do like her. Um, but that the, they have not been able to translate that fondness for her to a uh, an affinity for the party. Hamilton's a little bit different in Hamilton. The NDP does quite well, but yeah. outside there in the province, not not so much. Well, that GTA HA area, as they call it now, the Toronto Hamilton area, and maybe you could probably make an argument for that four hundred one corridor from from there all the way up to about uh, well Ottawa, even I suppose. Uh, that's where the cons- the liberal strength seems to be right now. Well, and clearly, yeah, that's well, what they're going to concentrate on. Urban Ontario, urban Ontario, especially in the GTA, but also the bigger centers, um, is where the liberals, both federally and provincially, have done well. The NDP actually did surprisingly well in the southwestern Ontario, yeah. not just the centers of Windsor and, and London, and they want to seat in the in Waterloo as well. Uh, not just in those areas. There are some places where the Liberals were weaker last time. I don't have a full grasp as to what, why the Liberals did so much worse than the NDP in southwestern Ontario compared to the GTA. But without question, urban Ontario, and particularly the, there's a bunch of new seats that are being added, particularly in the suburban areas. I guess that's true around Hamilton, but it's especially true in, in, uh, with regard to Mississauga and Brampton and sort of the ring or the suburbs around Toronto. Uh, that's probably where the... Um, the determination who wins, assuming it's a somewhat competitive election. That's probably where it's, uh, it, it's, it's going to, to come down to. Um, when I've done analyses with sort of, and again, there's very few, um, very little polling data available, but at the, the polling that was available before all these stories broke back at the end of last year suggested we might very well be heading for minority government, where the, uh, the liberals were down, the conservatives were up some, but not so dramatically as to give them a majority. That, too, would add, uh, again, this is speculation for beyond June 7th, but all of these things, I think, are going to make it a very, from my perspective, a very riveting election to, to try to follow, and there'll be a lot of events between now and March 24th and indeed beyond. Let me ask you one thing that came up yesterday in the conversation uh, about Doug Ford again and, and the, you know, the, him throwing the hat in the ring. Is he really just a, a GTA phenomenon? And I understand. I, I did a quick. Somebody, a listener asked me this yesterday, and I went online after the show yesterday and started looking at some of the papers from other places in Ontario. And some of them mentioned the fact that he was running. Others, it didn't seem to appear there at all. I know they know who the Ford brothers are, certainly, but I, I don't know that there's a, that charisma outside of the Toronto area for a guy like that. Well, the charisma was really his brother. Yeah. Um, it, this one, it does not have the. Again, uh, the Fords were never my taste, so I'm not going to say anything particularly flattering about either of them. But indeed, I think um, you know his brother Rob was the one who connected with people at sort of a gut level, and they liked the fact that he said all these boorish things that uh, that allowed the, the kind of things they would say. Just as has been described of um, of Trump, that he's sort of our Archie Bunker with a Twitter feed. Uh, that indeed, it seemed that that was the style of of Rob Ford. Um, whether Doug, I, I I think in many ways his appeal. Um, has been exaggerated in Toronto. He did, uh, the brother did win the, the election, although that was with a split vote. But that was on issues relating to local taxes and sort of the waste of government spending. And it was very much uh, like the, the, um, the idea of, uh, the, the, he was talking about the gravy train, but basically uh, draining the swamp. It was that kind of, 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 um, of image that people think that there's waste in government. I suspect there's some of that outside Toronto. I don't think that Doug Ford is going to be the leader. If he is the leader, I don't think he's going to uh, to win the election. I think Mulroney or Phillips or somebody else would probably do much much better. 
But I don't want to say that there aren't Archie Bunker types out there beyond the boundaries of Toronto either, and there may be some people who are going to be prepared to, in the unlikely event, by my perspective. Mind you, I was wrong about Trump, so maybe I'll be wrong about this one too, but I do not think that, um, that Ford is going to be able to translate the Conservative Party into, into government come June. Barry Kay, as always, uh, thanks so much for this, Barry. Great talking with you today. Bye for now. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Last night, President Trump addressed the nation in his first State of the Union address. Uh, well, it's mixed reviews. I mean, the, the tone we were told was going to be one of optimism, but, uh, well, there was talk about gangs and drugs and violent immigrants and a threat that from North Korea that he said seemed to indicate was imminent. Uh, it, was, uh, it was an interesting evening, to be sure. Joining us to talk about this is Jacob Diesenhutzel, who is the Assistant Professor of Political Science, University of Buffalo College of Arts and Science. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, let's let's talk about maybe a di- couple of different things. Anytime there's a, a speech of, some ma- of major significance like this, is the content of the speech and the performance of those who are actually delivering the speech right now. Talk to us maybe about your impression about the performance last night, and then we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts. Well, I think it was sort of classic teleprompter Trump, uh, if, if I may. Uh, he didn't really go off script like he's been known to do at some of his rallies and on the campaign trail. He uh, stuck to presumably what was written for him and, and negotiated ahead of time and uh, delivered it well enough. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think um, many of us are, are pining for Obama's delivery in, in some of those moments, but uh, he, he was able to, to get through it. Um, and, you know, elicit uh, reactions from at least uh, his side of the aisle. The drama uh, and the subtexts and the subplots, I guess, even before he started speaking last night, seemed to dominate an awful lot of the uh, the preamble. Uh, you know, uh, who was going to be there? Who was, who was uh, sitting it out? Who was uh, going to keep their hands on their laps throughout the course of the night? Uh, then the rumble, of course, about uh, the First Lady actually showing up in a different car. We haven't seen her for a few weeks. Is there a rift there because of some of the other stories that have gone on? There's, there's always drama surrounding this guy, isn't there? Absolutely. And um, yeah, I think that's just sort of the, the modern presidency in many ways. Um, there are lots of things that can be politicized, and, and we can talk about all elements of it. And you know, it's the, the age of social media. And so, uh, you know, at a time when... Um, everyone can have an opinion about politics and put it up on Twitter. Um, that's what we're going to see. And so people are going to gravitate toward every little element of the storyline that they can latch onto. And you know, I think we should come to expect this, not just of this president, but the next president as well. Um, everyone, little part of that uh, aspect or um, element of the presentation of self is going to be uh, taken apart. The other subplot, I guess, of major concern to an awful lot of the people that were sitting in that joint session last night were the midterm elections, which are coming up later on this year. And uh, it's one thing to say I'm going to talk about the State of the Union and maybe try to, you know, uh, beat the drums about what we've accomplished and are going forward. But these guys are worried about their elections uh, coming up later on this year. And they were looking for something last night, the Republicans, that is, that they could latch on to and take back to their constituents and say, see, things are going to be all right. Did they get that from the president? Um, I don't know if uh, Republicans who, who think they might be in trouble um, are going to be able to go back to their districts and, and say, look, here's this compromise position, this more moderate position, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to accomplish. Uh, if you're one of those fairly safe Republicans and you're not worried about it anyways, yeah, absolutely, you can go back to your district and say, look, you know, this is a fantastic speech and 
Um, here's all the, the red meat we're giving to the base. Um, but I still think if you're in one of those swing districts where, you know, maybe it was a close call or close race or um, last time or Hillary Clinton maybe even nudged out Donald Trump um, at the presidential level, but the Republicans somehow held on to the seat, I still think that's going to be a tough go going forward. What about the message itself? Uh, you know, we were told that there's supposed to be some bipartisan efforts here that they wanted to talk. I think one of the quotes was a new American moment of unity. Uh, yet, as, as the speech went on, it, he seemed basically was doubling down on his major talking points from his election campaign and the first year in office, that being immigration, uh, America first, uh, you know, lousy trade deals, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to point to bipartisanship, you you can. You can talk a little bit about infrastructure. Um, you can talk maybe about a potential, although unlikely, deal on immigration. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The rest of it sounded much like campaign trail Trump. And, you know, some areas where he probably didn't have to go into, such as talking about the national anthem, he managed to, to stick that out there such that uh, it uh, came off as more divisive than it could have. But therein lies the problem. And I'm, I'm looking at a poll this morning. Uh, I think it was in the Times, the New York Times I saw. There's there so many papers this morning. Uh, it was an Associated Press uh, North, uh, Center for Public Affairs research poll. 67% of Americans say the country is now more divided after Donald Trump and one year in the, in the White House. Uh, that, to many people, is a troubling statistic, but uh, it, it seems to be run counter to what the president was said he was going to talk about last night, which was about unity and bringing people together. Did the speech do anything toward that end? Uh, again, you'd have to have fairly selective perception to come away <laughs> from that speech, saying that that was a, a unifying speech. Uh, again, you know, the, just the, the little jabs at his political enemies or at people across the aisle, um, the way in which he talked about some things really didn't seem like extending much of an olive branch. Again, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find it. And some congressmen locally here have been talking about how, you know, maybe they can get behind uh, the president on infrastructure when he talks about those kinds of things. So, it's there. It just certainly isn't front and center, and it's not something you would expect from a, a unifying president. The one of the things that did not get mentioned yesterday was was obviously uh, the stalemate that was uh, staggering. I, I guess the Congress for a couple of days there, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yet the reasons why, i.e., immigration, did come up last night, and it seemed as if the president again was was doubling down on his idea that look, we can make a deal here, but only if you give me what I want. Uh, yeah. The <laughs> It doesn't uh, exactly instill you with the most confidence that we're not going to see another shutdown going forward. Um, it, it seemed like you know, his idea of a deal or a compromise is, is very different than some more traditional definitions of that. Well, essentially saying that, look, it, I've got a deal here for those dreamers, but you've got to give me a lot more money for, for border security, and you've got to build the wall and pay for it. Uh, which, by the way, I, you know... <laughs> It would seem to be the topic of discussion an awful lot during the stalemate from a couple of weeks ago, the shutdown that happened. Uh, and I know that that date's fast approaching right now. And if you take the president at his word from what he said last night, it kind of sounds like you were going to have round two in just a few days now. Yeah, I think that there's probably nothing that's going to, to stop us going forward <laughs> into a, another kind of stalemate. Of course, I expected the last one to last longer as well. So I, I've, I've been wrong uh, on that dimension here in the in recent days. But um yeah, I, I don't see um, anything that would avoid another kind of head-to-head. Did you get the sense, uh, and again, going back to tone, that the speech it sounded in many people's minds an awful lot like what his inaugural speech was. It was about the politics of fear and, and, and doom that, that were coming up. And I think what Americans tend to want to hear during the uh, State of the Union is that, that sense of optimism. But there wasn't a whole lot of that last night. 
Uh, I think that's absolutely true. You you can find quite a few parallels between the inaugural speech and, and what happened last night. Uh, a little bit more in terms of a victory lap. I mean, he came yeah. out talking about the economy. Uh, and so if you... <laughs> If you only heard the very first part of that speech, maybe you could come away from it saying that's an optimistic look at where the country is. But, you know, once he started talking about, you know, gangs, talking about sort of cross-border violence, those kinds of things, you know, harken back to his campaign talk and also, you know, his, his first speech that he gave as president of the United States. Uh, I mean, that idea about, you know, the gangs and, 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 and tying that to immigration and uh, even with some of the folks that he introduced that he brought in there as guests for last night, it, it it's... It, I it, I got the sense anyway, Jacob, that what he's basically doing is is driving a wedge into that divide that's already there, and creating that fear about immigration and you know the the wrong people, bad people coming into the country. Absolutely, I mean, in, in politics, fear is a very powerful motivator. Um, there's an old saying that you vote your hopes and you vote your fears, right? You you vote on you know, what you hope the country can look like, and then you also vote on you know what you're afraid of. And if you can play up that fear factor, if you can tap into you know, folks who have a tendency toward more law and order types of ideologies, um, I, I think that plays well among the base and, and maybe encourages them to, to come out in an election that otherwise they, they might stay home in. Well, and and I guess to beat that drum, uh, bringing North Korea into the co- equation, which I guess was inevitable he was going to talk about this, but he was pretty direct about what he described as a, an imminent threat very soon, he said, North Korea will threaten the United States with nuclear-tipped missiles. I mean, that's that's a rather dire warning that uh, that you better be on the lookout and keep your eye on the sky. Yeah, absolutely, and and that plays right into uh, the kind of politics that he's been good at. Uh, up the fear factor. Um, don't worry about the hyperbole or you know outright, <laughs> um, you know, going off the the script. Um, but to, to get people interested, get people involved. And, and play up those dimensions to, to make them involved in politics. Let me ask you about the response. That's uh, always one of the interesting parts of this whole scenario when the State of the Union addresses are made. Uh, the uh, the other party, obviously, of course, gets uh, time at the end of that. And uh, it has not gone well for some of them in the past. Uh, Governor Jingo, uh, well, Marco Rubio a couple of years ago with the, with the water and, and, you know, the wonder about dehydration. Uh, last night it was, uh, it was Robert F. Kennedy's uh, grandson, uh, who right. uh, was Joe Kennedy the third? Who was uh, given the uh, the scenario or given the opportunity to make this? Tell me how. What was, what was your impression of this? Uh, what's the Democrats uh, characterized as a rising star in their party? Um, <laughs> I mean, he's a Kennedy, so he's always going to have that kind of cachet. Um, it wasn't terribly impressive uh, to me personally, but um, that, that's in large part because I expected what was coming. Um, you know, not a whole lot surprises you after you've seen enough of these and seen the responses. And, you know, he, he did fine. I don't think he did anything to, to really bring the storyline away from the Democratic um, platform and away from what the Democrats would ultimately like to see happen in response to Trump. Um, but uh, it really didn't um, seem to be coming from somebody who was this rising star, as they, they might like to, to think about him as. Well, I don't know what his ambitions are. I mean, as you mentioned, he's a Kennedy, and, and with that, of course, comes a, a quite a load and, and quite, a, I, I guess, a sense of expectation. But uh, but by the same token, uh, it, you wondered what the choice was for and, and exactly what they were trying to accomplish. I guess, had they put one of the uh, the others out there, I guess uh, some of the more high-profile Democrats out there, whether it was going to be a Pelosi or a Chuck Schumer, uh, they, they've already, I guess, cast their lot, and I think the Americans have made up their mind about them one way or another. So maybe a, a fresh face here gives, they hope, maybe a fresh face to the Democratic Party. I think that was a good strategic decision on their part, to you know, get some new blood in there. 
Um, I'm a little puzzled by the fact that it wasn't somebody who's more immediately recognizable as coming from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. You know, the folks who are, you know, fighting hardest or at least are the most out front um, against a, a Trump administration and against Trump's agenda. Uh, I was a little confused that, you know, Bernie did his own, uh, which I suppose we might come to expect, but there was nobody else who fits that more progressive bill. I realize that Kennedy's voting record places him within that camp, but he's really not visible, or at least hasn't been visible up to this point. But this is such a key year, Bill, because of these midterm elections, and if the Democrats really and truly want to, to make some gains in both houses, they've, they've got to start making some gains with the public, and I'm not so sure that Kennedy was the guy to be able to do that last night. I, I'm in agreement with you there. Um, you know, the the Republican brand isn't doing well, but actually neither is the Democratic brand if you look at the polls. And so, um, you know, I think Democrats are going to, to win in the midterms, at least in the House, um, sort of in spite of themselves. <laughs> um, it's just sort of how the, the political winds usually, um, usually play out. It's this idea of surge and decline, right? You have a surge of interest in the elections that helps uh, the president's party in power, and then this decline that comes with the following midterm. I expect that to play out at least on the House side. But the electoral map doesn't look that great on the Senate for them. So I don't know that they have that much in the way of hopes to, to take back the Senate. What about the uh, the Trump bandwagon that, that played so much into, the, well, Trump's election, certainly, but I mean the election of another of Republicans. This is a guy they really didn't want as their candidate, uh, yet when they saw the, the tide switching and, and, and all of a sudden the wind in his sails, an awful lot of Republicans who had been chastising Trump for even entering the race uh, jumped on board. Uh, Paul Ryan comes to mind, Mitch McConnell. I mean, that's, that's a pretty long list. Uh, do they ride those coattails or try to ride those coattails in the midterms later this year, or do they try to separate themselves from Trump? I wouldn't be surprised if you saw Republican leadership sort of release members to do what they think is best in their districts, um, probably not hold them to any kind of party line as the elections approach or hold them to saying particular kinds of things about the party and the party leadership. Uh, I would fully expect them to, to say, okay, if Trump can run well in your district, by all means, go ahead and do it. If distancing yourself from Trump is going to do it and is going to keep that seat, well, you should do that, too. Um, that's what I expect to see from leadership. That idea of vote your conscience didn't go over well at the convention, did it? Was it, was it, was it, was it Ted Cruz <laughs> that made that announcement? They thought yes. it was going to be an endorsement, and he just said, vote whatever you think. Mind you, now that they've uh, they got a year of Trump under their belt, a few of them may actually want to be able to have that, that freedom, I would think. I think that's true. You know, it's very different at the convention when you're trying to, to rally. Um, but when your seat is on the line and your personal political future is on the line, um, it becomes a little more personal. Jacob, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure talking with you again today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Professor Jacob Neheisel uh, from uh, the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Science, uh, Professor of Political Science. Uh, lots more to come up. And by the way, lots more in the UA of U.S. politics, as uh, Professor Neheisel already mentioned. The uh, potential for another government shutdown is just a couple of days away. Uh, February the 4th, I believe, is the deadline for finding some sort of a deal. And uh, they're still a long way apart based on what the president said last night about that immigration issue. Keep an eye on that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.